the book of Mark. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study. By the way, this is our third week as a church together, right? So the first week we met, we had a barbecue, and so next week will be one month. Don't you think we should have a barbecue? I never thought of that idea until right now. Hey, Pastor G, let's have a barbecue next week after church. But let's get the little place at the state park that's closer this time. The people had to walk too far. They don't say nothing in heaven about walking. You can make the people sing, but don't make them walk. So next week, come hungry. We'll have a barbecue after the service as we did the first week. Tons of meat. I hope you know that God did a miracle that day. We planned, uh, we bought food for 200 and we fed 550 people. And there were leftovers and people coming for seconds. Straight up. Straight up, God did a miracle. That's biblical. The book of Mark, we are in chapter 1, verse 14. It says there, And after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Father, this morning, we ask that as Pastor G prayed, you would speak to us through your word. We are in need of you this morning. We watch the news, we read the papers, we look around at our world and our community and we understand that it's all messed up, Lord. We think we're good, but we're not. You alone are good. And so we are in need of your instruction. We are in need of your words. We are in need of your grace and your mercy. We are in need of your forgiveness. And we are in need of your power. And we are in need that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so instruct us now that we might be your kingdom subjects, submitted unto you, worshiping you, useful in your hands. I pray this morning, Lord, if there's anybody in here that has not received your forgiveness, that this morning they would cry out to you and you would forgive their every sin and bless them with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we studied the temptation of Jesus Christ and we read it in Mark and we looked at it further in Matthew or I think it was actually Luke, Luke giving us more details and we learn there in the Bible without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus, though he was tempted on all points as we are, was without sin. And the book of Hebrews declares him to be holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, without sin, Jesus Christ is. The Bible makes that very clear. Because he was sinless and perfect, he was able to be, for you and I, the perfect sacrifice. He was able to satisfy the wrath of God, that is, that which he did upon the cross, take our place, take the penalty of our sin and our guilt and our shame upon him, pay the price for you and I. He could only pay the fullness of that price because he was perfect, because he was the undefiled sacrifice of God. Beyond that fact, the fact that he was tempted in all points and yet is without sin makes him our high priest whom we could go to in the time of need, in the time of trouble, when we are with sin. Because am I the only one in the sanctuary this morning that sins more than I want to? 
I don't think so. I need an advocate with the Father. I need someone I can go to for help, for forgiveness, for power. And only Jesus Christ, the Bible declares, is the one that we can go to. Beyond that, the fact that he is without sin means that he is the righteous king, the perfect king. He rules rules perfectly in all ways and at all times. Imagine having a perfect president. Can you imagine that? I don't know what you think about George Bush. I don't care what you think about George Bush. I don't think about it too often. I usually just think about the king of kings because I know he's in control of the entire world. But can you imagine having a perfect ruler? perfect in all of his judgments, imagine no more. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's coming very, very soon to establish his kingdom here on earth. That's what the Bible says. Beyond the fact that he is a righteous and soon-coming king, because he conquered temptation and the schemes of the enemy, he left us a wonderful example. And we learned last week that we could look to his victory over the enemy and the weapon that he used, which is the word of God, and we can employ that same weapon when the enemy of our souls comes daily against us. And I hope you went away last week with a realization, with the idea, with a fact in your mind that there is power in the word of God. Not because it's black and red ink on white pages, but because it is the absolute truth and the very word of God. And when it is made audible, when it comes from your lips, there is power in the word of God in the spiritual realm. God has invested it with power. In the spiritual realm, there are lies put out by the enemy. You hear them all day long about you and your relationship with God. You feel it when the enemy comes against you in shame and in condemnation. Those are the lies. The truth is the word of God that says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The truth is in the word of God that declares that he spilt all of his blood upon Calvary, that we would no longer experience the shame of sin, that he took that from us, and the penalty of sin. And so when the enemy comes with his lies, our weapon, which is divinely powerful to destroy the lies of the enemy, the Bible declares, is the word of God. You must become accustomed to speaking the word of God often and in every context because there is power in it, in the spiritual realm and in our lives, power that God honors. Did you also know that there's power in praise? Do you know that? Do you know that when we begin to praise the king, when we exalt his name, when we sing hallelujah to him, when we sing about his righteousness and how wonderful he is, when those words come from our lips collectively, congregationally, there is power in that in the spiritual realm. Power which causes God to be enthroned upon the praises of his people, Psalm 22.3, and power which defeats the enemy, Satan. In your Bibles, there's a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I don't call it a story because it's not true. It's a historical fact retold. And there was King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat was a good king. He's chilling with the kingdom there. Everything is fine until all of the enemies came against him. And we're told that the, the uh, Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Tittites and the Termites and all these other nations begin to come up against him. And he inquired of the Lord, Lord, all my enemies are coming. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. It's too much for me. I can't stand in the face of the enemy. God, what shall I do? And God sent to King Jehoshaphat a prophet. And the prophet said this. 
Send out into the battlefield those who sing praises in holy attire. That is, the choir, the worship team. God's strange response was, Jehoshaphat, you need not fight this battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. But you must declare praise in the midst of the battle and on the field of battle. So in the morning, send those who wear holy attire to worship the Lord into the battlefield. And so King Jehoshaphat was obedient. And we are told there that the choir, so to speak, of Israelites went down into the battlefield in the morning and they just begin to worship their God. They just begin to lift up praises and sing about the king, sing about their God. And as they did, we are told in Second Chronicles chapter 20 that the enemy was confused and confounded and frustrated and in the midst of the confusion and the frustration, all of the enemies that came against God's people began to fight against one another until they killed each other, and there was not a single one left standing. Praise defeats the enemy. And so when we come together congregationally on a Sunday morning, some of us having walked in victory throughout the week, others of us just having made just a giant sinful mess of our week, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to come to church on a Sunday morning and just say, Gee whiz, Lord, what happened this week? I'm a mess. The enemy has gotten the better of me for sure. I have done that again, and I did that, and I said that, and why did I do that? And why did I go there, and I didn't mean to do that? And I imagine that if I feel that way sometimes on a Sunday morning, that a few of you do too. And so when we come together collectively, and we begin to exalt the king, when we begin to praise him with a loud voice, declare who he is in the midst of the sanctuary, in the midst of the community, in the midst of the congregation, the enemy and his minions hear that and they must flee. They cannot stand in the face of the praises that are given to the king. The enemy must flee. The enemy is defeated. The enemy is confounded. The enemy is frustrated. The enemy is on the run when we exalt the king. Now, Imagine that you walked up to a mighty fortress and you know there was a king inside. You knew there was a king inside, excuse me. And you wanted to take that fortress and destroy that king. And all his guards and all his men were standing on the wall. And as you came up against that fortress, they just kind of stood there and said, Oh no, oh, what do we do? I don't know, man, what should we do? I don't know, what are we going to do? Tell the king. The king can't do nothing. He ain't that much. What are we going to do? What would you do if you were the enemy? Man, you destroy, you take the kingdom, no problem. What kind of chump subjects are this, you would say? But if you walked up to the fortress knowing that the king was inside and that it was his domain and all his men were standing upon the walls wielding all their weapons saying, Come on! Our king is the greatest king! We don't sweat you! We don't fear you! Bring it on! Everything that you got, you're going to die! Come on! What would you do? What would you do, people? Man, if you have a brain, you flee! Listen, Satan is not dumb. When the subjects of the king stand upon the walls and proclaim the goodness of the king and the power of the king and the glory of the king, he flees. So please, Christians, proclaim who the king is in the midst of our community. It is imperative. I will say that it is required of the subjects that they proclaim the goodness of the king. 
and in the midst of your week, as the enemy comes against you with all his lies, try this sometime. Just start worshiping. Just start praising God for his faithfulness and see what happens. And so last week, we talked about that. We talked about temptation and the spiritual weapons given to us to deal with it. But if you sin this week, let me remind you once again that you have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus. And if the weight of the world comes against you this week, let remind you of what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that he did not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory which we shall see in Christ Jesus. And let me remind you, if you begin to lose heart this week in the midst of all the tribulations and the schemes of the enemy in your own flesh, therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, the word of God declares. And Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In this world world, you will have trouble, he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And even in spite of all that the word of God says there, if you become anxious this week, I want you to remember Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, make your requests and your supplication known to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, those verses that I just shared with you are what we might call kingdom principles. That is, they are real and they are put into action by the fact that Jesus is ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Therefore, we are urged in the book of Colossians chapter 3, the first few verses, to set our minds not on the things of the world, but to set our minds on the things above, where Christ is seated in the heavenly at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. Those are kingdom principles, and you are, Christians, the king's subject. The only place where there is a disconnect is in the area of faith. When we cease to believe and act upon the kingdom principles given to us in the word. When we cease to believe and act upon and cling to the promises given to us there. Jesus doesn't stop being king. He does not stop being sovereign. We just start being dumb. You know what I'm saying. Are you like me? The Bible says be anxious for nothing. But in all things, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God will guard your heart. And yet I find myself anxious over and over and over again. I want you to realize that in our text today, in the book of Mark, the first thing that came from Jesus' mouth in this gospel account was, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has been established. Look now in verse 14. It says that Jesus said this after John had been taken into custody. John the Baptist, you'll remember that we spoke of him our first week together in the first 11 verses. John the Baptist came preaching a very simple message, very one-dimensional. What was that message? What was it? Repent. John the Baptist came saying, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. 
And now John the Baptist has been taken into custody by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas ruled a full quarter of what we would call the Holy Land of Israel. And he ruled over the northern region, which we would call, which is known as Galilee. He reigned from 4 BC to about 30-something AD. And Herod Antipas was having an affair with his brother's sister. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. That would be his sister. Herod Antipas was having an affair with his brother's wife. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you guys are awake and alert. And John the Baptist, listen to me now. John the Baptist called him out on it. Do you understand that this was Herod? Who had invested in him all the authority of Rome who was a ruling power of the world, and yet in his sin, John the Baptist made it clear that that was wrong. For it, John the Baptist was arrested by Herod Antipas, thrown in prison, and would soon be beheaded. But John the Baptist took a stand for righteousness. He had no fear of man, and he had a right concept of who Jesus was. Now listen to me. This week, I went to a meeting at City Hall, and there's a meeting there because there's been some conflict between the youth of Carpinteria and the Sheriff's Department. Um, Nothing too major, but they're just not hip to each other's gig, if you know what I'm saying. They're not quite getting along. A little bit of conflict there. It's not the end of the world. But they were there to meet together to discuss, to hopefully come up with some solutions to the conflict that the youth of Carpinteria and the sheriffs of Carpinteria have been experiencing. And toward the end of the meeting, after hearing a whole lot of stuff, one of the moms spoke up, and listen to me very carefully, Christians. One of the moms spoke up, and this is what she said. Listen, listen. She said, if the kids just had a clear idea of what was right and what was wrong. Wait a minute, hold on. This woman was not a Christian. She was not speaking biblically. She said, if the kids just had a right idea from you, the sheriffs, what they could get away with and what they couldn't get away with. If the kids just had some sense of right and wrong, what she was saying was, it is ambiguous to our youth. They don't know where the line is, therefore they can't tell when they've crossed the line, and when they get smacked down for crossing the line, they're in shock and awe and wonder over it. Welcome to the world of moral relativism in which we live. Where whatever you want to do is good for you, don't mess with me, and whatever I say is right is right for me, but not for you. And if you say it's wrong, it's only wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me, and there is no clear distinction, there's no black and white, there's no line drawn in the sand, it's all relative. That is a lie from the pit of hell. This mother seeing the conflict in our community was saying to the sheriffs, our kids just need to know right from wrong. Hello, it's called the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. God has laid out, amen. God has laid out in his word, kingdom principles, a clear definition between right and wrong. John the Baptist knew right from wrong, and John the Baptist took a stand in his community, and he took a fall for it. Now I wonder, and I'm, I'm with you guys. I am not separating myself from you. And in fact, I'll come down on the ground on your level, and I'll sit down as you are, and I'll say to all of us, including myself, 
I wonder if we would be so bold as John the Baptist in our own community to take a stand for righteousness in the midst of the rulers, in the midst and in the face of those who have power, in the midst of the mockers and the scoffers and the moral relativists, I wonder if we would be bold enough to take a stand like John the Baptist before we get all Sunday morning fired up and say, yeah, I'll take a stand, preacher man. Yeah, for sure, we can all do it. Before you say that, realize that there is always consequences for righteousness. Until God establishes his kingdom here on earth, there will be consequences the moment you seek to stand up for the righteousness of God and walk according to his word. Can anybody relate? Does anybody understand? Do you know what I'm talking about? John the Baptist was in prison and would have his head removed from his body for righteousness. Now, that won't happen to most of us. But if it does... I want you to take note of what happened next. The second part of verse 14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came. After John had taken a stand for righteousness and had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee saying, I apologize for right and wrong. I apologize for my precepts and I won't let John do that anymore. Do you have the same Bible as me? Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. John's ministry came to an end. The prophet was put in prison. Listen, you can shut the mouth of a prophet but you cannot stop the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the moment the mouth of the righteous man, John the Baptist, was shut, Jesus Christ himself showed up with the power and the authority of the kingdom, and he upped the ante on the scale of righteousness. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Understand, in your own life, as you seek to, seek to stand up for God, when persecution comes, Jesus Christ himself will intercede. Do you understand what I'm saying? You stand up in your workplace and you begin to share and you begin to love on somebody in the name of Jesus and somebody says, hey, you can't do that. You can be sure that when they go home, the spirit of God is speaking to their heart. Jesus came into Galilee and preached the gospel of God. You go to school, and there at school, you take a stand for righteousness. Even in our own church, sometimes we have to stand for righteousness. Sometimes my own staff here at this church, man, I'm glad I don't pay these people. Sometimes the own staff here at this church, they call me out on things. In the office, there we are during the week, and they say, Britt, you can't do that. What do you mean we can't do that? You're supposed to be a man of righteousness. You're supposed to stand up for what is right. You can't do that. And I say, you're fired. No. At that moment, the Holy Spirit ministers to my heart the truth of what they've just said. That's what happens. They shut their mouth because they see the look of arrogance on my face saying, how dare you rebuke me? But at that moment, the Spirit of God, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The Spirit of God brings conviction. All you need to do is speak it and the Spirit will apply it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Jesus picked up right where John left off. Jesus, up until this point, 
it's weird, Mark doesn't record it for us, but before verse, between verses 13 and 14, a whole year has taken place. Jesus has been ministering in primarily a little to the south of Galilee in the area of Judea. And now that John is arrested, Herod being the ruler over Galilee, Jesus heads in the perfect direction of the enemy. Herod was a ruler over the area of Galilee. As soon as John was arrested, here came the backup, Jesus Christ, into the very danger zone, the area of the enemy, and picked up right where he left off. And now, the message that he came with is of greatest significance. It is of most importance. It is the only message. The message has never changed. But realize that when Jesus came, the message could have been very different. Because the Bible declares that when Jesus came, he knew the hearts of men. The Bible declares that he knows your heart and he knows my heart. That's slightly terrifying. The Bible declares that all things are laid out before his eyes. The Bible declares that he has a righteous standard far above our own, nothing like ours that we could never even compare. In fact, it says in the book of Isaiah that even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags compared to his standard of righteousness. The Bible declares that Jesus is the final authority and the final judge and that one day he will judge all sin. And so realize, friends, that when Jesus came, the message could have been very different. He could have come exposing the hearts of men. He could have come and with a word condemned all of humanity in an instant. But when God came to earth, When God saw fit to drape himself in humanity, there was but one message. And the message was, God forgives sin. The message was that God is a lover and that he is merciful and that he is slow to anger and that he is long in compassion. And so Jesus did not come with accusation. He did not come with uh, denunciation. But instead he came with proclamation. He came saying, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The good news of God is here. I have come to forgive sinners. I have come to set the captives free. I have come to give humanity a brand new chance. And throughout his ministry, the message was always the same. Everywhere he went, everywhere he spoke, that was the message. It says in John chapter 3, verse 17, the verse after the famous verse, The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I don't know if you understand this morning what good news that is. I don't know if you understand that God simply could have come as a judge and every single one of us would have been undone. There would have been no complaint. There would have been no argument. There would have been no case made for us. We would have been condemned for all of eternity, not because God is mean, but because we are wrong. The world teaches, doesn't it, that man is mostly good. If you believe that, you've got to be out of your mind. If you believe that, you for sure don't have cable. The Bible declares that The heart of man is desperately wicked and full of deceit. 
Who can know it? The Bible declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is coming a time when Jesus will come as the righteous judge and he will judge all of humanity. But he came born of a virgin draped in flesh to proclaim the good news that there is forgiveness for your sin and for my sin. And that is the heart of God until the very end. Judas, you remember Judas? Who is Judas? Judas the betrayer. Judas the betrayer. Judas turned Jesus in and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And on that night, he came with the Romans and they were going to arrest Jesus. And as soon as Judas approached Jesus, Jesus turned to him and said to him, friend. Up until the very last moment, giving Judas an opportunity to repent. And it is so for you and I and unto all the world that Jesus gives an opportunity to repent until the last moment. Turn now to Luke chapter 4 as we see a picture of this. Why don't you go to Luke 4 and, if you're quick, Isaiah 61. Luke 4 and Isaiah, I'm sorry, 41. Luke 4... And Isaiah 41. Luke 4 and Isaiah 41. In Luke 4, we have Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in his hometown. In Luke 4, 16... It says, and Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, was his, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, period. Do you see a period in your Bible? Is there a period in your Bible? Okay, take note of that period. Verse 20, remember the period. And Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And Jesus began saying to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He said, I have come to do these very things. Now, he was quoting from Isaiah chapter 41. Turn there now. Remember the period. Jesus quoting from Isaiah, man, 61, forgive me. 61. Remember the period. Isaiah 61. Jesus quoting, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, period? What's in your Bible? A comma. Wait a minute. Hold on. Stop. Don't look. Look at me. Don't look. Don't look. 
Jesus opened up the scroll to Isaiah 41, it wasn't, or 61, it wasn't Isaiah 61 then, those were added later, but he began to read this section. And when he got to the end there where it says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, he stopped and he closed the scroll. And he said, this has been fulfilled today. This is happening right now, the proclamation of the good news, period. But if he would have read on in Isaiah, there's a comma here and it says now in the second part of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped before the day of vengeance. He said, I have come to proclaim the good news, period, that you can be healed, that you can be set free, that you can be forgiven, that your broken heart could be mended. I've come to set the prisoners free, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, period. But in reality, there is there a comma. You and I are living in the comma. You and I are living in what is known as the age of grace, the church age, the time in which God has poured out His Spirit on humanity and is putting forth His forgiveness through the proclamation of the gospel. It is but a comma in God's plan. And after the comma comes the judgment of God. And if you read the Bible and if you study Bible prophecy, you begin to see that the comma is just about over that we are living in the last days, that we are living on the eve of an event which is called the rapture of the church, when Jesus will take the believers to be with him. This world will enter into something known as the tribulation period, where God will pour out his wrath on an unrepentant world, and Satan will also pour out his wrath against the nation of Israel. After that seven-year period, we are told that Jesus comes back during something called the Battle of Armageddon. And there he comes and defeats the enemy and his armies with the word of his mouth. And he comes with a multitude behind him, we're told in Zechariah. And that multitude are his saints, the church, the holy ones, you and I. And we're told in the book of Zechariah that he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And that he walks down the Mount of Olives as he did at the triumphal entry. Across the Kidron Valley, up the east side of Mount Zion, through the eastern gate and onto the Temple Mount. And there, Jesus establishes his kingdom here on earth. And then comes judgment. If you read the Bible and you watch the news, it will become painfully obvious to you that we are very near to those days. That is to say, the age of grace is coming to an end. And the day of judgment draws near. I tell you this for one reason. To beg you to receive the forgiveness of God for your sins. If you're not a Christian, I am begging you this morning to come before God and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven. And I understand, Jesus, that you are the only one who can forgive me, that you paid my price. Forgive me. Give me brand new life. If you have never done that, I am begging you to do that today. Jesus has proven that all his words have validity by his resurrection from the dead. The Bible says there is no way that we can be saved except through Jesus Christ. If you're unsure whether or not you are saved, then you probably aren't. If you are saved, there is fruit in your life. 
You know it. God is doing things in your life. You're being changed from the inside out. It is not a question. If you have never been forgiven for your sins, I have been sent at this moment in history to tell you now is the day to receive his forgiveness. Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom at that moment to tell you the forgiveness of God is here. If you are a Christian here today, you breathe for one reason still, to proclaim that good news. That is why you are still alive, because God has a purpose for you to proclaim that news to the people that do not know. If he did not still have that purpose for you, he would kill you and bless you by taking you to heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're warming a pew this morning or one of our nice fluffy seats, God has a purpose for you to share the gospel. If you're still alive and you're not a Christian, God has had mercy on you and he has extended your life until you repent so that when you die, you will go to heaven, you will go to paradise to be with him. And so Jesus came preaching one message that men can be forgiven. Back to Mark. Mark 1. Now, in the second verse that we're looking at today, verse 15, Jesus gives us the details of the proclamation. It says that he came preaching the gospel of God, and in verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, now is the time, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He said, the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. Now, throughout that moment in history, the Jews always misunderstood what Jesus was saying. And they had reason to. They knew the Old Testament. And the Old Testament declares that there will be a time when Jesus rules bodily or the Messiah rules bodily here on earth. They missed the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were looking for one who would come as a political and as a military conqueror on their behalf. Jesus came not as a conqueror over the Romans, but as a conqueror over sin to establish the kingdom there at that moment in history in its spiritual sense. In the hearts of men and women, Jesus ruling and reigning over men and women. That was the immediate fulfillment. But the Bible is also very clear that there is a future fulfillment of the kingdom where Jesus, the Messiah, will bodily rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem as I spoke of previously. The Jews were just expecting it at that time. The Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to come and to deliver them. Did you know that? And the Bible declares that during the battle of Armageddon, when the Messiah Jesus comes and defeats the forces of the Antichrist, that the nation of Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will repent. And there will be national revival for the nation of Israel and an ingathering and the blessings of the millennial kingdom upon national Israel. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus has yet to establish that kingdom, but it does not mean because he's not physically ruling and reigning from earth that his kingdom is yet not here. He rules and reigns in the hearts of men. Wherever Jesus has sovereignty is the kingdom of God. Uh Uh-oh, hold on, wait a minute. Wherever Jesus has sovereignty is the kingdom of God. So I ask you this morning, are you living according to the kingdom of God? 
does he have sovereignty over your life? It's only declared, it's only made known in the way that we follow him. Wherever he has sovereignty, there is the immediate fulfillment of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God today is not the church. The church is a gathering of people who are members of the kingdom of God. But the church is not the entirety of the kingdom of God. But you and I, as we gather together, we gather here together to seek the will of the king, to give praises to the king, to exalt the king, and to say to him, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth in our midst as it is in heaven. Now, do you think that God intends not to answer that prayer? Absolutely, he does. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so anytime we gather as a church, And when people get saved, we begin to experience the blessing of God's rule in our lives. And the kingdom becomes manifest through you and through me and through us as a community. The kingdom is manifest through the church. And the future and absolute reign of God that is to come on this earth breaks into current history. That is to say, the attributes of the future kingdom are made manifest through you and I. What might they be? Well, number one, victory over sin. In case you didn't know, in the final kingdom of God, there will be no sin. There will be no death. The enemy will be destroyed. There will be no demonic oppression. There will be no demonic possession. When the kingdom of God came, Jesus said to his disciples, you go out two by two on a little missionary trip now. They're in Luke chapter 10. He sent them out and he said, you go and proclaim that the kingdom of God is here and you tell people the good news. And they came back rejoicing saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. He said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. But nonetheless, the kingdom of God in its fullness broke into current history and the demons were subject to the subjects of the king. Sin no longer is master over us, declares Romans chapter 6, verse 14. And Jesus said there in Luke chapter 10 to his disciples as he sent them out, go and heal those who are sick, heal those with diseases, and proclaim to them that the kingdom of God has come. In the final manifestation of the kingdom of God, the fullness of the fulfillment, there will be no more disease. There will be no sickness. There will be no lack of health. There will be no pain. But don't you know that in its current manifestation in the kingdom, God at this moment heals? Don't you know that God is able to heal sickness? Don't you know that he's able to remove pain? Don't you know that God is able to do that today and that he does that in our midst? He did it in the Bible. He'll do it in the fullness of the kingdom. He does it right now. Anybody here ever had a touch from God? God's healing hand upon your life. Raise your hand. Raise your hand very, very high. Oh, wait a minute. Really? Raise them very, very high again. God's kingdom manifests in our midst. God is able to heal in our world today. And in the final manifestation of the kingdom, there will be there the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I've got to go. But it's to your benefit that I go, because if I go, I will send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. He will be with you, he will be in you, and he will come upon you. 
And that is the promise to everyone in God's kingdom today that we can have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives who, help, who helps us to live victoriously over sin and to walk obediently after Jesus Christ. And we end with this. He gave us the conditions of entering into the kingdom. Very clear, very simple. He said there in the last part of verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is that word which to reality carpenteria is the most beautiful of all words besides the name of Jesus. Repent. We love that word. Why? Because that word in its core meaning means to change your mind. And the very core of your thought process is to change your mind and therefore have your actions changed and therefore have your character changed. And God does that in us when we repent. All that repent means is to change our minds, to realize that we are wrong and God is right. I'm going to do something that you will hate, but I feel that I need to do it. We need to say that congregationally. Only say it if you believe it. We are wrong and God is right. One more time. We are wrong and God is right. To repent means to declare that before the congregation, before God, and before man. We, humanity, are wrong. God is right. And Jesus declared here, nobody gets into the kingdom of God where there's victory over sin and death, where there's no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease. Nobody gets in there unless they repent, change their mind and say, God, you alone are right. And the second step is to believe in the gospel. It doesn't say simply believe the gospel. Many people believe the gospel, that Jesus came, and died on the cross for our sins, and rose again and conquered sin and death and hell. Many people believe the gospel. It doesn't say merely believe the gospel. It says believe in the gospel. It means to put the fullness of your trust in that truth, in that reality. Not an intellectual assent to it. Not to merely say, yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Yes but to truly put your trust in that fact, to put all the weight of who you are, to commit yourself wholeheartedly to the gospel, to let your heart find rest and ease and repose in the gospel. It doesn't merely say believe it. It says believe in it. Cling to it as absolute truth. And so I wonder this morning, if there's anyone here that having heard the word of God says, wow, I need to repent. If God's standard is really that high, I've fallen short of that. And I believe the gospel. I want to believe in it. I want to put my weight on the fact that Jesus alone can forgive me of my sins and give me brand new life. I want that. If you want that this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive that. But you must do what Jesus said, repent. And here's what Peter said. Have you ever heard of the guy Peter in the Bible? Funny guy, a lot like you and I. Read the Bible sometime. Peter said one time to all the nation of Israel, repent therefore and turn to God 
that times of refreshment may come from being in the presence of the Lord. Listen to me. This life can be so wearisome, so tiresome, so overwhelming, struggling to get mine, struggling to get yours, struggling to attain to this place, trying to get ahead of them, doing this and doing that. This life becomes overwhelming and tiresome. The Bible declares that there is rest in the gospel. There is rest in Jesus Christ. There is rest that comes only through repentance when we get over ourselves and into God, but it takes humility. We're told in Luke chapter 18 that two men came to pray and one of them stood there proud of himself and said, I'm a good guy. I tithe of everything that I have. I don't do anything wrong. I'm great. And another one fell to his knees, it says there in Luke chapter 18, And he was on his knees and he wouldn't even look up toward heaven. And he hung himself low and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus declared that only one of them went away forgiven. Only one of them went away in a right standing with God. It was the one who was humble before God, the one who was willing to fall to his knees and said, God, have mercy on me. The one who said, I'm okay, was not. The one who said, I'm okay, was not. Only the one who said, God, have mercy on me, went away forgiven. So I'm going to pray now. And when I'm done praying, I'm going to offer to you the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Christians begin to pray at this moment. Those who aren't Christians, listen to me. You're going to have to do something very bold You're going to have to get up out of your seat and come up here. Stand before everybody, but most importantly, before God and say, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. And at that moment, God, your creator, will forgive every sin you have ever committed. He will wash the slate clean. He will give you a brand new start in life and he will give you eternal life. That is the promise of heaven. It is the most wonderful thing in all the world. But you've got to be willing to come to him humbly and ask for forgiveness, and he will give it. So as I pray now, you determine what your decision will be. This is the most important decision of your life. Nobody distract anything. As I pray, you determine what your decision will be, and at the end, I'll give you an opportunity to respond. Father, We thank you that you did come with forgiveness, that you sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins. We thank you for that. You could have simply come as the judge, but you have put a comma in history, a period of grace. And I just pray that nobody in here this morning would fall short of the grace of God but that everybody desiring would receive your forgiveness. And so now, God, we ask that you would draw men and women unto yourself. Those who have never asked you to forgive them would come and be forgiven. Those of you as well who are Christians, but you just need to repent, you come. And you join your new brothers and sisters in the faith. As we sing this song, This is your opportunity to come.
God bless you, brother. You come now.